HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Ben's Friends is the food and beverage industry support group offering hope, fellowship, and a path forward to professionals who struggle with substance abuse and addiction. Ben's Friends exists to provide a safe haven and an anonymous, judgment-free forum for workers in an industry that has one of the highest rates of substance abuse in the country. Their mission hasn't changed during quarantine. Ben's Friends chapters across the country are now offering online meetings. You can find a chapter near you at bensfriendshope.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Melissa Fuster from Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies in Fort Coralie. Many of us know about sushi, but have you heard of Funa Sushi? Historian Eric Rath shares his tasting notes from trying Japan's most Asian form of sushi. Eric is a professor in the Department of History at the University of Kansas and has multiple publications on Japanese pre-modern cuisine, including his latest book, Japan's Cuisine, Food, Place, and Identity. And he is also a certified sake professional. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Melissa. It's great to be here. Thank you. And I will also mention that Eric is a, a fellow member of the Gastronomica Collaborative. So thank you for joining us for on that end, too. Um, so, Eric, you're, so from your undergraduate studies in Asian studies to becoming a certified sake professional, you have an impressive CV as an expert on Japan. How was the beginning of this journey? What drew you in the first place to Japan? Oh, well, um, it was a family thing, actually. Mother's father, he traveled often in Japan. My dad lived in Japan in the 1950s. So I grew up around a lot of Japanese in my house, hmm. and I became interested in where these came from. And then when I got to college, I was able to take some courses on Japan and learn more. And then I decided, well, if I'm actually going to learn anything, I have to go there. <laughs> and so I spent a summer in Tokyo, and I, I guess I got bitten by a bug and decided to make a career out of this, and I'm glad I've been able to do that. Yeah, I know. You have a very uh, prolific career in this area. 
Um, so your article in Gastronomica take us through your recent trip to Japan, where you travel around tasting uh, the Funa Sushi. So before we get uh, more into this experience, just tell us what, what is the Funa Sushi? Right. Well, I think most people know sushi these days, and the forms are nigiri sushi, the hand-formed sushi, which consists of rice with a little bit of fish on top, and then maki sushi, the rolled sushi, the sushi roll with rice and various fillings with nori seaweed. Well, uh, those two types of sushi developed in the late 18th, early 19th century, and funazushi actually follows a much older recipe. That recipe has changed over the centuries and has actually changed a lot in the last century, perhaps, too. But it's an older type of sushi, and the purpose of it was to preserve the fish. Nowadays, when you eat sushi, you want to have something that's relatively fresh, and uh, you eat it soon after it was made. But funazushi was designed to be eaten months or years after it was made. It relies upon lactic acid fermentation. Basically what happens is the fish is salted and then it's packed with rice and then put in a container for months, if not years, and over time, a lactic acid fermentation takes place and the proteins break down. The rice becomes extremely pasty, extremely sour. This is the same reason why yogurt is sour, because of lactic acid fermentation. Mm -hmm. And the bones of the fish are rendered soft enough to eat. So basically what happens is the fish becomes pickled. Mm. And uh, this was an old way of preserving fish and also of, of changing the flavor, flavor palette of the fish. So what happens with funazushi is that uh, the fish turns into almost cheesy, meaty, sausagey taste. Hmm. And what spurred me to try and try Funazushi is because I read about it, and I read uh, that this was the most ancient form of sushi. And I thought, if I'm writing a history of sushi, a book that I'm completing right now, if I'm writing a history of sushi, I have to go try Funazushi especially since nobody talks about what it actually tastes like. Mm -hmm. And so that's what motivated my trip. And I learned on the way that the recipe has changed you know, so much over the years that it's, you really can't call it the most ancient form of sushi. Although, although the earliest types of sushi that were made in China, ancient China and Japan, were probably based on lactic acid fermentation like for the sushi. Wow, yeah. So, yeah, that was actually my, my next question. Uh, what what motivated you to to undertake this journey but you you are right if you're writing the the history of sushi you you, you it, it makes sense that you will go and and look at this uh, ancient preparation um right there's some yes. i'm sorry no no go ahead there's please just, there's just lots of different varieties of sushi in japan and they're preserved as local foods uh, but but funazushi is the, the representative example of the most said to be the most ancient type. And this comes up again and again in all the secondary literature. People point to it and say this is the most ancient form of sushi, but nobody talked about the taste. And so that really prompted me to, to figure out, well, well, what does it really taste like? And why are people not talking about it? <laughs> is it that they didn't try it themselves? Uh, you have to actually go to the region to try it, this region of uh, Japan called Shiga Prefecture which is in the center, central part of Japan. It surrounds 
the largest lake, Lake Biwa. You actually have to go there to, to try it. Mm. Is that why they haven't talked about it? Because they, they haven't actually gone there? Or is that was the mystery I was trying okay. to solve is why no one talked about the taste? Yeah, so that, that was another, um, you know, as I was reading this piece, uh, I was wondering how common is uh, funasushi in Japan, but you're saying it's a more regional thing, um, original dish. But be- before we, we jump and learn about this amazing uh, tasting journey that you had, I wanted to take on something that you mentioned. Um, and if you can tell us uh, a bit more about this, the variety of, of sushis that, that exists in Japan, because, of course, here in the West, we get, um, you know, a very, of course, limited uh, taste of, of, of this uh, rich cuisine. Right, yeah. Well, um, the type of sushi that we're familiar with, uh, back to the nigiri sushi, the hand-formed sushi, and the maki sushi, those developed in uh, Edo, which is now Tokyo, around the early 19th century. So those were actually regional Tokyo. Uh, there's lots of other types of regional sushi, different fish involving different methods of producing the sushi, Some were lactic acid fermentation sushi that took months and years to create. Others were speeded up versions of that, whereby uh, locals would take sake or the leftover rice from sake making or um, vinegar and then add that to the mix to facilitate the fermentation process. So there's all sorts of different varieties of of local sushi in Japan. Uh, We just don't have access to them in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, I bet it's a, we do have to follow your lead and, and go on a tasting spree. Um, right, yeah, I wish we could do that. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. So, for example, like in uh, Kyushu, there's uh, sake, local sushi that, that uses sake. Huh. And some parts of the north of Japan, uh, there are recipes that combine uh, different turnips with fish. So, quite quite unusual types of sushi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least at least from our standard conception of sushi. Yes. Yes. Um, so I wanted to to ask you because um, in, in your piece, and I I will take the opportunity to to try to motivate our, our listeners to go and actually read the piece and and look at the beautiful pictures that you have from from this tasting adventure. So you went on a two-day tasting spree, right? Eating funasushi at almost every meal. Um, can you give us a just a overview of how how this experience was before we go deeper into the the experience itself? Right. Well, I really wanted to get a handle about what this tasted like, and what I had read is that depending on the recipe, the taste is going to vary. So that's why I wanted to go to a couple days to eating as much of it as I could. And my headquarters for this, or my base of operations rather, was Omihachiman, which is a city in Shiga Prefecture. And I had read that uh, this city was famous for different varieties of funazushi. So I went there, and I had a, booked a hotel, and I asked at the hotel, I said, where can I find funazushi? And people <laughs> <laughs> you know, ask one another about where I was, which uh, for a moment, then some high-end restaurant, and I thought, oh, I, I don't really want to go there and spend 
hundred dollars to an issue. Fortunately, I found a farmer's market map, and so there was one farmer's market about three kilometers away, and I walked there, and I found some funazushi, brought it back to my hotel room, put it in the fridge, and then decided to do a little bit more exploring in town. And I discovered that a lot of the tourist areas serve or sell prepackaged slices of funazushi. Mm -hmm. So it was rather easy, it turned out. (laughs) <laughs> to assemble different varieties of funazushi here and there. And I should tell people what funazushi means. Funa mm-hmm. refers to a type of carp, and it's a close relative of the goldfish. And the carp is about the size of a human hand, and that's the kind that they want to use oh. for funazushi. Preference is to have a, a female carp, which has lots of uh, the eggs, lots of the roe inside. And these are caught in March or April, and then uh, the fish are cleaned, except for the roe that's retained inside the fish, and then they're salted until July or August, and then the rice is added to make the funazushi. Hmm. You know, yes, thank you for, for explaining that. That is uh, it's interesting how you, you mentioned it has a specific fish and then the gender piece of, I mean, the, the sex of the fish too, that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, you, you can use male fish, but there's a preference for the female ones. And if you ever see a picture of funazushi, there's this orange interior to the fish, and that's the row hmm. from the female fish. Yeah. Okay. So um, we'll take a quick break because I do want to hear more about your your journey and also how, how you write a piece about tasting something. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that as soon as we get back from the break. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Okay, and we are back. This is Melissa Fuser from the from Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies in Fort Coral Lee. Before the break, we were starting to to talk about uh, funa sushi, the most ancient form of sushi, how it tastes. Um, so now I wanted to to talk about the taste piece. Um, sourness is a a salient descriptor when when I read your piece in in this tasting journey. And it's curious how you also describe it um, using different types of, of ham and even cheeses so that the reader can can kind of get a sense of how this uh, dish tastes like. How Can you tell us uh, the process of, of how it is that you translate something so sensorial in, into, into, into writing? Well, trying this 
Funazushi was a bit like getting punched in the face. <laughs> it, was just, it was overwhelming. It was an overwhelming experience. And momently, I, had, I just had to recover from it. So I, um, to remember, I, I went around and I collected all various samples and I brought them back to my hotel room. And uh, I had a can of beer that I bought from the hotel vending machine standing nearby. I had opened that. And just took a small piece and put it in my mouth, and wow, I just was overcome <laughs> by the sourness, and to the point that it, it made me grimace and made my head spin a little bit. I mean, I, I had to turn my head physically. It was a physical reaction, <laughs> and just filled my mouth with, with this intense, sour uh, flavor, and I thought, what, what is this like? It's not like yogurt. It's just a hundred times more, hundred or a thousand times more sour than yogurt. But what it reminded me of was this childhood memory of this sour candy that a friend of mine gave me. <laughs> I'm thinking back like in second, third grade, it was this huge marble, you know, one of these shooter marbles, one of the bigger marbles, you put that in your mouth. And I remember spitting it out, it was so <laughs> sour, but it had a little bit of sweetness. Now, if you imagine taking that sweetness away, that's what... Punazushi wow. was like. It was so sour. And then after you have that sourness, then you can appreciate some other types of taste. There's this bit of uh, cheesiness. There's this cheddar taste. And when I bought some of the Funazushi the first day before I had tried it, one of the guys who sold it to me said, do you like uh, French cheese? And I said, yeah, sure. And he said, well, then you'll like Funazushi. So there was this sort of... Uh, a, uh, a cheesiness, uh, kind of like a French washed type cheese, uh, um, like a brie, a very, very um, rough cheese taste. And uh, that, that, that was the aftertaste after the sourness uh, hits you. And then you have the mouthfeel. The mouthfeel is kind of like a sausage, kind of mm. like if you buy a thin slice of salami. Bite into that. That's what the feeling, the texture of the fish has become. Uh, and then, if you try some of the rice, the rice though is completely like a paste. It's lost any of its texture, it's any of its sweetness, and it's the most sour part. Oh. So I learned that a lot of people don't eat the rice, even if they eat the funazushi, they'll just uh, you know, throw out the rice. <laughs> but you you did try it with the rice in the beginning. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted the whole effect of it. <laughs> So rice and all. And did you so so you do talk about uh, different preparations or different ways that that you ate the, the funa sushi? So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So this funa sushi had this meaty, cheesy aftertaste to it. Um, I had the opportunity to visit a restaurant that I knew sold funa sushi. And I wanted to see what they did. I, I heard great things about this, this place called Iwako Daughters. Daughters. And uh, it was a bit far from the train station. I had to take a taxi there and ended up costing about $30. But it was well worth the trip because when I got there, a restaurant that, was off, that has been in operation for a couple of years, and they sold all sorts of sandwiches, including a funazushi sandwich. And I said, well, I got to order this. <laughs> And so for about 8 or $9, uh, I bought one of these Funazushi sandwiches. And what the proprietor had done 
she took a very small slice of funazushi and she paired it with some Havarti cheese and then she put it on an Italian bread and it was remarkable because the cheesiness, the, the salami tastes, the summer sausage tastes really came out without any of the sourness. So I was, I had been to Tuscany once and I went to this hill town I had a remarkable sandwich there that uh, a local friend had ordered for me. And I, I thought, gosh, I, I feel like I'm back in Tuscany enjoying this, you know, secret salami sandwich. Uh, and there was no sort of sense of fishiness, no sense of, sense of, sense of, of sushi at all. It was really, really remarkable. Um, we had it kind of as is, but then she grilled the other half of the sandwich for me, and that was even better because it melted the cheese, blended the flavors even further. Yeah, and, and I am actually looking at the at the picture that you provided in the in the article, and it looks quite delicious, definitely. Yeah, it was. I mean, <laughs> who would have thought a sushi sandwich? But uh, it was amazing. Yeah, no, and that that's what's very interesting. That even though you, you know, the, the funa sushi is part of of you know, of course, the history of sushi. Um, but it, the tastes that you describe are so, so not the taste that people usually associate with with Japanese cuisine. No, not at all. But you know, Japanese cuisine has changed so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, 50 years ago, people ate twice as much rice than they do today. And actually, there's a lot of wheat grown in in uh, Shiga Prefecture, where Funazushi comes from. If you walk around now, you're just as apt to see wheat fields as you are to see rice paddies. Mm -hmm. um, and people do eat a lot of sandwiches in Japan. So this seemed like a natural combination, mm -hmm. and a very logical one. It worked very well. And I think would would be something that a lot of Westerners would like, a lot of Americans would like if they had a chance to try it. Once they got over the hurdle that they were eating carp <laughs> and, and, and sushi, if they, if they would only try the sandwich, it would be, I think, revel revelatory for them. Yeah, no, it, it looks again. It looks good. I'm looking at it right now. Um, so, so yeah, this, I think people can uh, download the article for free now. Yes, yes, and thank you. Website, they can do that. Thank you for mentioning that, and we hope our listeners get curious about all of this and do go and and actually read the the piece and look at the amazing pictures. So, um, this uh, you you were starting to talk, about, for example, about bread and, and things that are changing because, you know, as we know, cuisines do change. And you you write that, the, talking about the funasushi, that it, again, is often described as the most ancient, ancient form of sushi, but that the preparation has changed. So how, how has it changed based on what you learned from your tasting and also what you have read from before? Right, well, Based upon the scholarship of uh, some Japanese researchers, the modern-day recipe for funazushi probably dates just to the turn of the 20th century. And indeed, if you look at early modern recipes for funazushi, you can tell they're a lot different from what's happening today. For example, uh, I, in my work on the history of sushi, I've translated a number of these recipes, and one of them, I believe it was for the 18th century has a funazushi recipe. Uh, in that recipe, the recipe calls for brown rice, and it calls for making the funazushi in the wintertime. Mm. Now today, people use white rice, 
and they make the spoonage extremists. Those two different differences, I mean, those uh, two, two differences uh, point to the fact that this is not an unchanging recipe handed down since the ancient times in Japan, but one that it's, it's been tweaked over the centuries. And that's one of the things I, I find remarkable about sushi in general, is that it's an anonymous food that changes uh, through the years as it migrates to new places, as people's palates change. There's all sorts of developments in the history of sushi. And you can't really point to a person, a single person, as the inventor or innovator for sushi. It's an anonymous cuisine, mm-hmm. probably the greatest anonymous cuisine anywhere in the world. No, and, and it is, uh, I think, uh, for when, when people, especially, I mean, speaking of myself, when I think of uh, culinary traditions in places like Japan, you think of something that's ancient, that has all of this amazing history. And then, you know, the, what you mentioned about how things continue to change, and that is the case with any food tradition. But this, this Absolutely, also, yes. And but it also points to a tension that as we can see, for example, in food scholarship or how people talk about food in general, that there are there's this desire, right, to preserve tradition and notions on uh, notions of what is authentic based on tradition. But then the that is, you know, at the same time, change is inevitable. So, how you know, thinking of a of a dish like funasushi do people when when you were talking with people about 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 it or tasting it do they how do they talk about changes or did they perceive these these changes well i i think there's a recognition there are different recipes and there always have been different uh, every family that makes funazushi, and it was originally something that families did. Mm-hmm. Every family that does it, they do it a little differently. They uh, use a different type of rice. They use a different amount of salt. The restaurant Biwako Daughters, they throw in a little bit of, um, of the rice left over from sake making. So uh, it's okay. You know, people recognize that there are different variations to that. Just so they the same way that people cook and they add a little bit of different ingredients depending upon their preferences. Uh, but I think, you know, in the long, in the larger uh, point of reference, though, there is a recognition that funazushi is something that harkens back to earlier days, you know, um, perhaps even to the ancient period. We're not so certain, certain how old it is. There are records of sushi being made in Japan since the 8th century. What it was, we're not sure, but it could have, it, it seems likely that it was probably something similar to funazushi. The problem is, you can't draw a direct line, and that's where you know, historians like myself come in. <laughs> we have to be careful about these claims about the past, because we just don't have the historical evidence. Whereas, in popular writings or websites when they talk about funazushi or other culinary traditions that uh, those sort of things get elided very easily. People look over them very very quickly. Hmm. Yes, um, and you know, you, you mentioned just now that it is something that it is inevitable 
inevitably different because people make it in, in their home. Um, I'm guessing traditionally that's the way it, it is, right? But then uh, you also mentioned your first experience was with this uh, pre-packaged Funes sushi. So is it is it something that um, the industry, that the food industry is taking on now and making it a process or, or how it is that these packaged versions are, are in the market? Right, well, it's obviously time-consuming to make. Mm -hmm. And if people want to have it, it's easier to purchase it. And it's it's not something you could find outside of Shiga Prefecture. You can't go to a department store in Tokyo and find mm -hmm. Funazushi. Although, I should be careful saying that because almost everything is available in Tokyo in mm -hmm. some way or another. But uh, the packaged versions, I think, are for, for locals who want the taste of Funazushi, but not the effort. And then there are also uh, smaller slice versions for folks who are tourists who mm. travel to Shiga Prefecture. They want to eat locally and they decide, well, we've got to try Funazushi. So I'll just buy this packet for a couple of dollars and see what it's like. Mm, okay. So there is no, no worry or, or tension about uh, something traditional being taken and packaged and you know, industrialize in some way. No, I don't think so. Not in this instance. Mm, yeah, no. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Um, I think quite the opposite. That people see it as a as a way to to earn uh, and also to make some money from the from local food foodways. You know. Oh, so so it is uh, something that is packaged uh, locally, like you mentioned at, at a market or places like that. Um, not necessarily the market, but a local food producer. Oh, okay. The companies, uh, the packaging of the Funazushi that I purchased, they were all uh, local companies. So in you, you, you mentioned how um, Funazushi, again, can be the, a potential new way of, of looking at, at sushi and maybe dealing with uh, issues that we have in in our fisheries and the fish that we are consuming more of uh, with sushi. But what are some, can, and you, can you talk more about the potential drawbacks of this? Yeah, in the last part of my article, I, I kind of riffed on this idea about making funazushi in the United States. And, and the reason why I offer that up is several fold. First of all, I want people to think more about the fish that we're using for sushi. And a lot of the fish that are sushi favorites are threatened species or endangered species. One of them, in particular, bluefin tuna, that's almost synonymous with high-end sushi. We love, people love the fatty toro fish, that red, um, very fatty fish. Mm -hmm. But bluefin uh, is almost endangered. Or it should be listed as endangered because uh, we're, we're we're catching it in an unsustainable way. And so, to raise people's consciousness about that, I offer some thoughts about um, some sushi alternatives. And one of them is to consider using Asian carp. Now, mm -hmm. there are real problems in the United States. These four varieties of carp that were introduced in the 1970s have become invasive species in the Mississippi River and other waterways in the United States. And they're driving out local fish. They are 
sometimes even a threat to people on the waterways. These fish will jump out of the water and <laughs> knock over uh, people on boats. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're quite, some of them are quite large, <laughs> uh, 90, 90 pounds oh. or more in weight. And I thought, you know, rather than take some fish that's endangered out of one of the oceans, if you live in the Midwest, maybe we should take some of these invasive species that we don't know really what to do with and try to make funazushi. Mm-hmm. Carp sushi, there's a long history of that in Japan, but one of the hurdles will be to get people to try to eat carp <laughs> in the United States because carp doesn't sound very positive. Mm-hmm. Carp has, has a bad reputation of being a bony fish, of being a bottom fish. But actually, compared to some types of fish, they're, they're quite clean. For example, bluefin tuna, since they're predatory fish, they bioaccumulate mercury. Asian mm-hmm. carp don't have that problem because they're not predatory fish. They're vegetarian. So there's a lot of positive uh, health, health effects of eating Asian carp compared to some ocean fish. But, of course, there's another hurdle to overcome, and that's the technical one, actually mm-hmm. trying to use these to make funazushi. And uh, that, that, would re- that would require a different sort of scale of using a, a 90-pound fish as opposed to one that's just a couple pounds. <laughs> so, I, but I hope, I hope we're up for the challenge. And I, I think that if, if we actually attempt this, we'll find it. We produce a product that it would be favorable to a lot of Americans' palates because people in America, they love cheese. We <laughs> love uh, salami. We love sausage. And imagine if you can get that flavor profile, not from something that's high in nitrates or high in, uh, in calories, but from a fish. And that's what you could do with, with funazushi if you use the recipe for Asian carp. So we'll see. Maybe, maybe someone... Some bold listener out there will give it a shot, and I'll be able to try this someday and wash it down with my favorite beer from Kansas or Missouri. <laughs> no, I, I hope so, because, yeah, you, it makes complete sense. Uh, it is uh, one of those great examples of potential foods that can be good for the environment and also for, for our health. But unfortunately, as you rightly mentioned, um, there will be some hurdles to to go through and also um, again the idea that eating something that uh, eating a fish will, could have the ham and uh, cheese uh, taste profile I think that that might get people you know you have to really convince them but it is worth to try uh, so it, it, yeah and if people if, if they've done taste tests if people are given Asian carp and they're asked to compare it to catfish they like Asian carp a lot more most of the time. So it's not that the fish itself tastes bad. It's just we kind of have to get over our fear of carp. Yeah, yeah, again, it's uh, unfortunately things that it's not the taste. It's how we, we perceive uh, these certain foods. Um, but we'll have to, right? Especially with issues around environmental sustainability and also health issues that we're facing. Absolutely, yeah. Great. So I think uh, that's thank you for bringing that uh, up to our consciousness and I, I will second your your request that hopefully one of our listeners might be curious about this and give it a try and if you do please uh, reach out because I would also like to try that too 
So yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that would be great. And do do let us know, of course, if you do find it at at some point. Um, so, Eric, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your work. And for our listeners, if you would like to learn more more about Funa Sushi and look at these amazing pictures or other work featured in Gastronomica, visit gastronomica.org org, where you can access the Spring 2020 issue for free until the end of this year, featuring, again, images from Eric's two-day tasting tour. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, is an international interdisciplinary journal that presents new and original research, advances our understanding of compelling issues in the world of food, and invites critical debate and commentary across diverse audiences. We invite you to read and submit your scholarly and creative work. More details are available in our website. Gastronomica is supported by the University of California Press, and on behalf of the journal's editorial collective, I want to thank Heritage Radio Network, Meant to be Eaten, and its host, Coral Lee, for allowing us to share this miniseries podcast. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.